Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech, 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 tech talk. Tech, 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 tech talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Howdy, digital partners. Welcome to the Tech Talkinest podcast in the West. I'm mighty glad you happened by because we're loading up your virtual saddlebags with all the futuristic paraphernalia to give you the speediest head start in the technological gold rush. There's no state coil here, folks. And welcome to our digital fossicker extraordinaire with the mapper to the goldfields of tomorrow. It's Matthew Dickerson. Why, howdy, Matt. Yeehaw! I don't know why I got all Western all of a sudden. I want to know what you've been watching this week, James. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to know if you can keep that accent the whole way through. Uh, for the sake of our listeners, I'm going to pull away from that. But I thought I'd better commit just for the intro at least. Oh, well, you did well. Yeah, very, thanks very, very much. Good. Unrehearsed. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so I actually want to ask you a question this week for our oh, intro. Oh, I'm on the back foot already. You've had an electric vehicle now for... Some months? Oh, yeah, months? Uh, mid-September. So what are we talking about? Yeah, three months, two and a half yeah. months, three months. So how's the experience been? When people talk about it and they think about it and they um and ah and then they make the big decision, you've had it now for a few months. Yeah. How's the general driving I, I think, experience I think the been? problem is for me is that I get a bit boring talking to people about it. <laughs> and so if people sit still long enough, <laughs> they, they'll know exactly uh, how I feel about it. So, yeah, um, at uh, the, the risk of um, putting our listeners to sleep, I, just, I love it. Yep. Um, and um, you still get a giggle every now and then um, yeah, when you when you put the foot down uh, yep. and you hit the open road. Uh, and, you know, it's just uh, the, the fact that, that I'm topping it up with charge each night, you know, just a, just a little bit. And look, we've got solar panels. So on the weekend, we, we get our, our charge completely for free. But, you know, I'm only putting $25 worth of energy in per week now. Yeah. Um, and we live out of town, so there is a bit more travelling. If you're in town, you're probably putting in decidedly less than that yep. if you're charging it off peak. So so the cost saving is great. And just I get a bit of a warm, fuzzy feeling about being a bit better for the environment than if I was burning the fossil – well, sorry, burning the petrol. Yep. Um, obviously, um, you know, if I'm charging overnight, well, then that's coal-fired power, and I get that. But the the translation of energy into – well, translation of energy in creating the electricity – into into the drive is much more efficient than mm. going from the petrol into yeah. the drive, and so. And so, have you had any hassles? Have there been any problems? If you're going, oh, now I see what people are talking about with range anxiety or with having to wait too long to charge or any of these issues. Well, look, we haven't done any big drives yet, so um, we're still yet to experience range anxiety. Um, uh, but you know, um, it, it's it's only a matter of time. We're not holding back on long drives because of it. Uh, it yeah, it's just the, the situation hasn't arisen yet. And so I'm looking forward to taking it on a big long drive. Yeah, yeah I've had people saying, oh, you, you won't be able to drive to the coast or you won't be able to drive to Coffs Harbour. Yeah, why not? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and what you'll discover, what I and I'm going to tell a little story in a minute, but what you'll discover is that the people you'll meet when you charge up are all fascinating because people are – all as keen as you are to talk about EVs, when you stop at a charging station and there's someone else there, yeah. they're as keen as you are to talk about EVs. So suddenly you get these like-minded people <laughs> having a discussion and then next thing you know, your car's charging. Oh, hold on, we haven't finished our discussion yet. We'll stay here and chat a bit longer. Yeah. So you, you get this bit of camaraderie. You get some discussions. You get different viewpoints when you're charging up. So I actually find that quite enjoyable as well. But one thing did happen the other day, which I found fascinating. People I know have created entire business models so that they can have an EV as part of their life. And I know one person who basically created a hire car service to drive people from one regional city 
to the big smoke, to Sydney, and created all of this business just so she could go out and buy a Tesla and justify the expense of ah. that <laughs> with the higher fees that she was charging people Fantastic. and giving them that luxury drive into the city. So I thought that was a great idea. But I saw one the other day, I went to charge up at a charging station, there was someone who was plugged in there charging in the charge that I wanted to use and most people are pretty friendly. I have a lot charge. of people got lots of questions about them. They they want to engage you in, in conversation. They, they do. Whether or not they still want to engage you in conversation like forty five minutes later <laughs> when I'm still going, blah, blah 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 and have a look at this and yeah. <laughs> yeah that might be a good point. Uh, but the, in this particular case, and this often happens, how much charge do you need? Oh I need five minutes. Oh I'll unplug and you can ch- plug in for those five minutes you might need mm. or I'm about to go now. There's a whole range of conversations. But this one was really interesting because I just as a friendly conversation hi how are you going where are you off to what are you up to and they're semi-retired this couple and they thought we really love our ev so much how can we justify driving around lots what can we do that's useful to society instead of just driving the car because we love driving it <laughs> so they got on to mystery shopping a mystery shopping company and said we want to be mystery shoppers for you but send us to wherever. We don't care oh, right. where you want to send us. We'll go wherever because they're using this as a way to basically discover the state, mainly they're going around the state at this stage, but maybe further than that. And when I saw them, they were on a 600-kilometre round trip to do one mystery shop. Now, the logic <laughs> is they're not spending much on electricity. They're either charging up where it's free or charging up where it's, it's cheap to charge anyway. Mm. But they're using this as a bit of an adventure. So, oh, great. Well, this week we're going out to some far-flung place and we'll do the mystery shop and we get paid a bit of money to do that but it's not about the money for them it's about having a purpose having a reason mm. to do it and getting to drive their car so they've kind of yeah. created this whole lifestyle now around driving the car some nights they said if we know we're going somewhere and we're not getting paid too much for this mystery shop we might just sleep in the car we've got it all set up and ready to go otherwise <laughs> we'll stay in motels or stay in caravan parks so they had this whole life adventure wow. laid out for them based around mystery shopping, using an EV to get to all these different places. And again, a bit like you say, they didn't feel bad about destroying the environment and just clocking up kilometres for the sake of clocking up kilometres because yeah. you would feel that way if you are driving a petrol car. Plus, there'd be no way you'd make money on the mystery shopping if you are doing it based on just the petrol costs alone for some of these places. So it's uh, interesting. Well, and I do talk to a lot of people who are uh, 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 seriously thinking about um, an electric car for the next car, too, yeah. which is really good. Yeah. And yeah. your family is a perfect example. I often say to people, if you've got a two-car family, surely you can justify one of them. When you want to get in your car and drive to Perth, which you do, of course, every second week, yeah. then you need a car probably at this stage that can take petrol because it's going to be a longer trip if you go with an EV. But if Well, we've got a, a longer-range diesel car, and I haven't filled it up with petrol – or sorry, with diesel – since we got the Tesla. Yeah, there you go. So having that second car, so if you really do need to jump in the car and go for that really long trip for whatever reason you need to do that urgently, then you've still got that safety feeling. But mm. then people get to the stage where they might have one EV, one petrol, one diesel, mm. and then eventually they go, you know what, why do I need that second internal combustion engine car? I'm just going to go two EVs. Well, so. I'm actually looking forward to doing a, a trip across the high plane in it. Yeah, good. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a fair way to get to Mildura, but... Um, uh, yeah, I reckon we can do it, and mm. um, yeah, we're going to do it. Yeah, that's right. And it's only getting better all the time. So anyway, it's interesting, and it's good to see people out there, again, creating these whole different business models yeah. or lifestyle choices around their love of the vehicle. Uh, well, and yeah, look, another thing is, as someone said to me, oh, yeah, but I can't tow my boat on it or whatever uh, with, with an EV car, and, and that might be a bit of an issue, but I think we've got a story, something along the lines of that later today about being able to tow and getting a bit of range as to, well. To a reasonable size load, you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but first things first, let's get into our first story. 
What do you give a dog that has everything for this Christmas? A shiny new collar? A designer name tag? Yet another rubber bone? Wrong, wrong, and wrong. Now it's time to fix your pooch up with a video game console, and you heard that right. Matt, I believe the hottest game this summer is called Hello, Mr. Postman. <laughs> You've just given them another idea for another game. <laughs> Rough! <laughs> now, one of the problems we have talked about before is that during the pandemic, people were lonely. They couldn't have visitors come along, for example. They couldn't go out and do things. So a lot of people bought pets, dogs, cats, as mm. some form of companion during the pandemic. Now, a lot of those nasty old bosses out there are saying, you've got to come back into the workplace. But what does the poor pet do at home then? they start to suffer from separation anxiety. Yeah. They start to suffer from loneliness themselves. So what's the solution? Well, you could say to your boss, sorry, I'm going to keep working from home. Some people have tried that with some success and maybe some not yeah. so much success. But the other solution, of course, is technology. So why not a video game for your dog so that you can go out in the morning and say, there you go, Rover, you've got that video game to play with. See if you get a top score by the time <laughs> I get back home and away you go. Now, and as you can imagine, they're not... Don't chew the box. <laughs> don't chew the box, that's right. They're not overly complicated. So one is a bit like a whack-a-mole. So you'll see, or you won't see, the dog will see something pop up on screen and all they've got to do is touch their nose to it and then it pops up somewhere else on screen. You might think a dog might find that a bit frustrating because it'll be almost like trying to catch something, catch a mouse and then mm. the mouse suddenly appears somewhere else. But apparently the dogs love it when, we, when I watched a video of a dog playing this and the dog seemed to be quite happy. I'm not sure how you judge a dog's happiness, but it seemed to be quite content to continue on doing it. Another one is a bit like Pong, where you've just got a dot moving across the screen and the dog's got to catch up to that and touch it with its nose. So they're the, the first games that have come up. Hello, Mr. Postman might be the third game they come up with where you've got to pretend that you're attacking a postman. Yeah. So the postman <laughs> runs across the screen, you've got to bite the leg. <laughs> but it gets better than that. You've got a video camera on it, so you could watch the dog playing while you're at work, of course, in your lunch break, <laughs> not while you're meant to be doing some real work. A big old distractor. And the, the last thing you can do which, again, I'm sure bosses across the world are cringing with this one, you can actually play against your dog and <laughs> play remotely. <laughs> so you could be at work playing a game against your dog. And you've got to touch the mole with your nose. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so you can touch that whack-a-mole the quickest. <laughs> so these are the things we're coming up with now as solutions. I'm not convinced these are solutions we absolutely need, but the experts are telling us we are. We do. And if and your dog's already got everything. If your dog's got everything, that's more the point, I think. Mm. And I'm not sure. I know our, we've got a couple of dogs, and I know when our kids give them Christmas presents, for example, they don't seem to appreciate mm. them that much. So they're not really that mm. thankful for presents they get. So maybe this would be the one they'd be thankful for. But it also improves, apparently, the cognitive abilities of the dog or your pet. I've never really noticed the cognitive abilities of our pets diminishing without <laughs> being played with, but maybe I'm not looking hard enough. Maybe I don't play with them long enough to realise that their cognitive abilities are going downhill, but these video games will help with that apparently. So this is the present. This is the thing you need this Christmas. This Christmas. <laughs> rush out and grab yourself a dog video game console. This next story comes from the files of Steve Austin, the $6 million man. Apparently the latest bionic body part that scientists have been able to recreate from bare nuts and bolts is, wait for it, the taste buds. Matt, excuse me a while while I take a bite out of this delicious donut and cue the sound effects. This is an odd one. How does an electronic tongue work? 
Well, the first question I had was not so much how does it work, but why do we want an electronic tongue? That was my first question. Guess if, guess if you taste blind, then um, yeah. That might Maybe be one you want reason. want to taste a juicy steak again. For <laughs> well, the other reason is that there are panellists of people that are taste experts. I don't know what you write on your business card for this, yeah. but you can be on a panel that I gets enjoy to food. <laughs> yeah, <you know>? that's <laughs> right. <laughs> that might be it. So you can go on various panels and you can get to taste things. Now, the first thing I thought of was, well, that sounds great. How do you get on one of the wine tasting panels? Yeah. But you can't be quite that selective, maybe, because some of those wine tasting panels also need to taste food. For example, here's a bit of meat. We know it's still okay to eat health-wise, but it looks a bit green and decay. Uh-huh. But can you taste it and see if it's acceptable for the public? So you also get the fun stuff like that as well as the wine tasting. Yeah, right. So sometimes <laughs> they're finding that people aren't great at doing all the testing they need to do. But the other part is that humans are different. So one human, their genetic makeup, mm. what they ate in the last week, what they ate in the last month, what microbiomes might be in their mouth – all make a difference to how they define the taste of things. And look, some people are super tasters too. We do a, a test with a little bit of paper. It's, um, was it PKU paper or something like that? And uh, if you can taste it, you hate Brussels sprouts. <laughs> yeah? So people who hate Brussels sprouts can taste this phenyl, uh, phenyl triurethate or something like that. You know, I'm right. making that up. Yep. Uh, but um, yeah, and that's the chemical in Brussels sprouts that turns people off them. Okay. Now, I love my Brussels sprouts. So there I'm you obviously go. not a taster. Not a, a super, super taster. taster. But <laughs> well, people are different. They are, exactly right. The idea of this electronic tongue is it effectively uses some sensory membranes to pick up taste compounds and it's associated with the five characteristics of what we can taste in our tongue. And of course, when you and I were at school, there are only four taste buds apparently on our tongues. And it's not as if we've grown an extra one, but <laughs> science has moved on and we've now got umami as the fifth one. So back when we were at school, we used to have sweet and sour, saltiness and bitterness, and that was what we thought it was. And I can remember the old map of the tongue. Yeah. It was almost, so what, if I want to taste something sweet, I go to that quadrant of the tongue, do I? <laughs> of course, that's not right. That was a simple way to represent the taste buds on the tongue. Yeah. So we've got those five taste buds on the tongue. This electronic tongue can detect all five of those, the compounds that make up those. But then more importantly, you can get a repeatable, consistent score for the taste level on each of those. So for example, you would give it a food, a some substance, and then you would get a score and say, well, the umami score of this is 7 out of 10 and the bitterness score is 2 out of 10. Oh, so you wow. get this same re- repeatable score each time because the electronic tongue doesn't have all those biases that we talked about, doesn't have the things that you ate last night or last week impacting the taste. And so then you can actually look, and I can see food labelling coming here, you could actually look for foods that have got similar scores ah, to foods that right. you like. So if you like your Brussels sprouts, you might go along and look at the five different scores, and I imagine it would be the five separate scores. Oh, gee, it's got an umami score of three. I'll go and look for other foods that have got an umami score of three. That might mean that I like those foods, even though I don't really know what it tastes like. Yeah, when right. I break it down in a very scientific manner, that will give me some idea, some recognition. The other part, of course, is things like decaying meat. So it looks ugly, it mightn't smell great, but if it gives a score of various components of the five different taste buds, then people can still know what it's going to taste like. 
they might have to close their eyes and eat it because it mightn't look that fantastic. Yeah, right. But this is the sort of thing, so you can taste various foods, and then that might mean that you throw food out later, so food becomes more useful. Because if I pulled a bit of meat out of the fridge and saw it looking just slightly off colour, I might go, oh, I'm not going to yeah, risk it. Yeah. But if you had an electronic tongue to make sure it was okay and you had some other way of detecting whether it was going to be healthy for you, then you can still go and eat it and be comfortable with that. But I think it'll be more used in food labelling with that consistency across the board. Mm, well, wait, wait and see about that. Office work. If you're not careful, it can be really hard on your health. Long hours of fairly sedentary tasks with the potential for poor posture or RSI, high stress environments encouraging poor diet choices, snacking on donuts and elevating caffeine intake to hypertensive levels, all leading the unwary down the worrisome path to a long-term health problem. Well, folks, one clever software developer is looking to improve health comes for office workers using sensors. Now, to be clear, there's nothing here for high stress or poor diets. And the inactivity, uh, well, nothing there. But these sensors are at least going to help manage the air quality in the office, or so is the intention. Matt, what are the ins and outs of this? Well, I want to tell a story first. I was a particularly challenging or annoying or fantastic student uh, when, uh, when I was at school, depending on the attitude of the teacher. Sure, okay. <laughs> so yeah. someone like you would have loved me as a student. Matt's past teachers. Can you please phone in and let us know? <laughs> That's right. Uh, you would have loved me because I was curious. I used to yeah, ask yeah. lots of questions and I wasn't great at accepting an answer that didn't make sense. I wanted to keep challenging and questioning, which sometimes landed me in the principal's office because I was too challenging uh. to teach sometimes. <laughs> but I used to love being curious. And one of the things that I was very curious about was this whole concept when we learned about respiration and we'd breathe in, say, 20% oxygen that was in the general air and then we'd breathe Mm. out 15% oxygen and that 5% that was changed from oxygen to CO2. And I used to start to think about that. And I had a very small bedroom in our house as a child and I'd sit there at night sometimes and i think, wow, I'm breathing out all this CO2 in this little tiny room. Am I going to run out of oxygen I'm getting a vision of Harry Potter under the stairs here, but yeah, keep going. (laughs) Well, maybe not quite that small, it's pretty small. (laughs) So I used to think about this a lot and I'd ask teachers about it and they said, no, no, it's right, air will change from your bedroom to outside. And I'd go, but... But how does the CO2 know to leave my room and the oxygen know to come in? Who who <laughs> says that the special filters there that make it go in each direction? Once I finally learnt the kinetic theory of gases, it made more sense to me, but I'm yep. probably talking about primary school here where that wasn't really a large part of the syllabus, the kinetic theory of gases. So, oh, so you weren't even picking on high school science teachers. No, no, you this were is, picking this on is your prim- primary school teachers. Right. <laughs> Surely they know everything. Like at primary school, you think your teacher knows absolutely everything about everything. So what I kind of came to the conclusion was I should just sleep with my door open and maybe when I get out of the middle of the night to go to the toilet, walk outside for a bit to get a bit of fresh air or, <laughs> or get something there. And it wasn't, it wasn't like our house was so tightly sealed that any room could be considered to be a sealed container. And I'm guessing, well, you hadn't died to that point yet. <laughs> That's so. right. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking that some of my teachers palm me off that way saying, well, you're not dead yet, so, so don't worry about it. But I actually did the calculations at one stage and I calculated did the volume of my room, and calculated a good night's sleep, And it's actually interesting because the calculations I did back then were based on the general air having about 330 parts per million of CO2. Of Mm. course, that's progressed since now, until now, where we've got about 417, I think is the latest figure we're up to. But I would work out that if my room was a sealed unit, which obviously was part of my problem in terms of the solution, it wasn't a sealed unit, but if it was, I reckon by the end of the night, I was up to about 15,000 parts per million of CO2. Now, when I read some articles around this and had to go to the old good old-fashioned library and look up various articles, at 3,000 parts per million, humans can start to experience headaches 
and we have to increase our respiration to actually get enough oxygen. Yeah. At 10,000, we start to have fatigue, anxiety, loss of energy. At 40,000, you're basically going to cark it. So you can build up that CO2 poisoning way before lack of oxygen becomes a problem. So these are all things that I was challenged with as a child, all these things going through my head. Of course, exactly as you said, we've now got a woman who, through a, a basic need in her mind, she had a daughter with debilitating asthma. And she was worried about the air quality triggering her asthma, her daughter's asthma. So I wanted to work out how she could manage or look at the air quality in her neighbourhood. Of course, there's no way she could find to do it. So she created sensors, these small, cheap sensors that you could put basically anywhere, would feed back into a central unit, and then you could look up on a website or on an app to see what the air quality was. So she wanted to map air quality to asthma attacks for her daughter. So again, necessity being the mother of invention, in this case, literally, it was the mother of invention because it was the mum inventing this for her daughter. So seven years later, we've had a pandemic we've gone through. Air quality is a really big issue. And what scientists have found is that you've got higher levels of CO2 in an environment, you're probably more likely to have higher levels of pathogens. So these sensors that this lady's created, invented, are only used really for detecting CO2, not for detecting COVID-19 in the air, but when you get those higher levels, that can be an indicator that, hold on, you need to get some fresh air coming through because you're building up everything in the room, including pathogens. So, yeah, COVID-19 or otherwise, if you've got lots of pathogens in the air, people are going to get sick. Exactly right. So forget about COVID. If you just had lots of people with the flu in the room, for Mm. example, more pathogens in there, more likelihood. So now office workers, their kind boss can actually put some of these sensors around monitor the levels. If it gets up around 700, 800 parts million of CO2, that's considered okay. Get up around 1,000, maybe 2,000, that's considered not enough ventilation, not enough air coming in. So then the building manager might have to change the ventilation systems, maybe just open a window, might be as simple as that. Mm. But you need to get those CO2 levels down. The other part that's interesting is that Harvard did a study on this and they found that 2,000 parts million was the level that many officers were getting up to by the end of the day. And so with that level, you actually found people a little bit sleepy. Not Yeah, I would have said sleepiness. Yeah, yeah kicks not, in. Yeah, not yeah. drowsy, but you're just a bit tired and you think you've done a really hard day's work and, oh, I'm so exhausted. But really, it might just be the buildup of CO2 in the air to a level that you're not going to notice headaches, you're not going to notice anything drastic, but you're just yeah. going to notice that you're not quite functioning at your full capacity. Yeah, a little bit of lack of um, clarity of thinking perhaps, yeah. Quite possibly. So that's where I, I love these sensors. And again, they're inexpensive, they're cheap, they've got a battery in them, you can put them up, multiple ones up around an office space, put them in your home if you like, because I'm actually going to investigate putting somewhere in my home because now I can solve that problem that I had <laughs> as a child. Because you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. So I think the, the concept here is that we just get so many different inventions, so many people solving these problems with simple little solutions because we've got so much better connectivity now, we've got so mm. much better in terms of our battery power. So I just love the idea of that, of monitoring all of that. The other thing is that yeah, my mum used to complain sometimes that sometimes I was hard to get out of bed in the morning and now I can tell her that maybe it was the the lethargy or lethargy from uh, too much carbon dioxide. CO2 build up overnight in my small little room. So maybe it wasn't me just being lazy. Maybe it was that build up of CO2 that maybe was Maybe if causing she wanted to get up early, she should have given you the master bedroom. <laughs> maybe the bigger with room. With the ensuite. Back along the line of the $6 million man, new developments in artificial legs will see that amputees will soon, very soon, be able to get a prosthetic leg with gears in it to help you go upstairs. Now, presumably this leg is therefore motorised, which brings a whole lot of questions. But changing gears for the steep uphill stuff? 
How's that going to work? It's actually interesting. I know a few people. I've got a vision of a motorcycle gear as well, so you've got to <laughs> change the gear up with your good with, foot. With the foot. <laughs> I know a few people with prosthetics, and you see them walk. If they've got long pants on, see them walk on flat ground, it's hard to pick up they've got a prosthetic on. So mm. they're very good in terms of the way they learn to use it, and the prosthetics are getting better, obviously. Mm. And I know one guy in particular who rides a push bike with a prosthetic, and you can ride along beside him, and he's keeping pace with everyone. But for both people on ground and for the friend I know that's on a bike, you get to a hill on that bike, and that's where he struggles. And part of that is the ankle and the calf muscle, so the ankle joint and the calf muscle. We use that more on a bike than we realise getting up a hill. Yeah, right. And that's when he starts to really drop back when you come to a hill. And again, people that are walking on flat ground, give them a set of stairs, and that's when you know it's pretty quick to see that they've got a prosthetic on. Most of these prosthetics at this stage haven't been motorised. You're spot on. Mm. The motors have been too big and clunky, and the batteries are the main thing, that they just haven't been good enough. But... We've developed batteries a lot recently with mobile phones, with EVs. Our battery development's going ahead very quickly. So now it's at the point where you could have a battery on a prosthetic and small motors on there to help you walk. They don't really need them for walking on flat ground. So it's not as if they're going to wear out the battery quickly. But when you get to some stairs, that's when this particular prosthetic really comes in its own or gets to its own. So so my brain's going into overdrive right now because, yeah, as you walk, you you the lower part of your leg's got to swing forward. If you're not using the motor so much while you're walking on flat ground, then that could be turned into a generator then. Yeah, I hadn't actually thought be, about you that. You could be restoring charge in the battery for when you do need it, going upstairs and stuff. Yeah, no, a great idea. And I haven't thought about how that well, might be Well, I hope the engineers way. did and I hope they're listening in. Well, they'd obviously be listening in, I would assume. When you get to some stairs, though, it's actually clever enough to sense that you're going upstairs. So unlike your idea of using your good foot to click up some... manual (laughs) gears. That's right. right. It it actually detects a little bit more torque is required. So the motor kicks in, but then it actually moves the pivot point on the prosthetic leg so that it's actually getting a little bit different or a little bit uh, different in where it uses its leverage from. So it actually uses its motor, uses a different lever point and then actually helps people upstairs so the idea here is that you can be walking on flat ground maybe recharging the battery as you say but at least not using up the battery too much get to a set of stairs and you walk up the set of stairs using your prosthetic and just doing it at a normal pace so it's quite incredible and one of the things i find intriguing for research is that we don't see as much research as it would be like as i'd like to see anyway for people that have got a missing limb but there's just not a big enough market out there there are lots of people without limbs of various descriptions but again if i'm developing some sort of technology product i probably want to develop it for eight billion people rather than Mm. a smaller subset of those people but it's great to see someone here who said no we need to make this a bit easier for people out there i haven't seen this in terms of bike riding and that's the next thing i'd be interested to see whether or not you could have this motorized leg used in some way to help someone on a bike in the same way i've seen bike riders struggle up hills having a bike rider get some assistance when it get to those hills and use a prosthetic and the motor on that leg to do the same yeah look i'm getting a visual image of lee majors in his red 1970s tracksuit going up the stairs with the the sound effect but he's just walking up the stairs that'd be awesome at a normal pace not normal pace not at 60 miles an hour i think it was his top speed wasn't it but yeah i hope it comes with the sound effect obviously it has to Cool feature number 89 about my new electric car is that there's a bunch of awesome extras that you can just add on as easily as hitting a button on your phone. Optional extras are becoming less about taking the car into the mechanics to get fitted out for a new whatever 
and more about just downloading the software. Mercedes-Benz is the latest manufacturer to get on board with this, and Super Acceleration is now just a phone tap away and another $1,200 or so from their customers. Matt, what's this about? We did a story recently about BMW who did something similar where they said it was cheaper and easier for them to manufacture all their cars with the same seats. And if you wanted heated seats, you just added $18 a month in a subscription service Mm. and suddenly you had heated seats. If you didn't want it next month, so you're in the summer months, for example, then don't worry about renewing that subscription. So there's logic in that. And surely from a manufacturing process, rather than having this incredibly complicated manufacturing process, and I've seen various shows where you see the manufacturing and QR codes were originally invented for car manufacturing because they needed to track so many different body parts and so many different Mm. descriptions. So when model number 17 comes through that is ordered specifically for James Eddy, then we need to make sure we've got these various components together. That's very complicated, and it means that every car is almost bespoke or almost a unique build, so it becomes harder in terms of the resale value of that as well. So BMW got onto it with car seats. Sounds fairly simple with a car seat. Mercedes have said, well, I like that idea. Let's see what we can do about it. In a couple of their EV models, the EQE and the EQS, they've said, well, we don't want to put different motors in for the different power configurations of these. It's easy for us just to manufacture the one motor. The difference between the super powerful motor and the slightly less powerful motor is not a lot in terms of the manufacturing cost, mm. and it just complicates everything if we do different motors for different models. So why don't we streamline that manufacturing and just put the same motor in all of them, but in the past, car manufacturers have made so much money out of accessories. Yeah. When you buy that car and it's whatever base price you agree on, and then you say, I want some little extra, it's hundreds or thousands of dollars and you know that it probably costs them $10 extra to put that in. You know that it's nowhere near (laughs) the cost of what you're paying. So that's the cream on the top for these car manufacturers. So in this case, Mercedes have said, well, you know, just like you said, $1,200, if you just add that subscription on, we'll give you 24% more power. We'll drop 0.9 seconds off your 0 to 100 kilometer time, acceleration time. And if you don't want that, don't pay the $1,200 next year. I don't know whether they'll allow it to be a monthly subscription like BMW are doing. It mm. sounds like it's more an annual subscription, but maybe they'll do something where it's $200 a year, so $100 a month, or if you only want a month-by-month month subscription, it might be 150 bucks a month. Well, it makes sense to have your heated seat cover, uh, sorry, heated seats to be, um, to be on a monthly basis. It does. Whereas acceleration, do you only want it in the getaway season? Is that <laughs> right? <You> just, <laughs> maybe. Well, well, I was more thinking in the holiday season when your friends are visiting and you go, I'll yeah. impress them with my new EV, <laughs> yeah, okay. and the rest of the time you go, I don't want to lose my license, so I don't need that extra acceleration there. But I can see this being a way going forward. And keep in mind that many companies around the world now are trying to get to the point where they've got some sort of annual recurring revenue rather than big hits when they sell something and then smaller hits. So Microsoft, Mm. for example, used to get a big hit when they'd bring out a new release of Windows or a new release of Office, and then it would taper down until the next one, whereas obviously now they've gotten that point where they're trying to sell annual subscriptions for everything. And so many manufacturers, many companies are doing this now. So for EV manufacturers or car manufacturers, all the money they used to get out of servicing cars is probably not going to be there in the future because EVs need so little service. What else can they do to replace it? Well, this is the way they're going to look at replacing it. And again, I can see more efficiencies in that manufacturing process. Rolls-Royce, a name synonymous with elegance and luxury, has also been a big deal in aviation in the past. Indeed, 
World War II enthusiasts know how Londoners found the sound of the Rolls-Royce engines so comforting as they heralded the arrival of their lauded Spitfire planes, the fighter planes in the Battle of Britain. Well, Rolls-Royce is making headlines yet again, this time for producing hydrogen-powered jet engines. Matt, is this the sound of a new era in flight taking off? It is certainly the sound of the new era in long-distance transport. Maybe that's on roads, maybe that's on jets. You're saying jet engines on the roads? Well, no, sorry, long-distance transport in various forms, whether whether it be trucks running on hydrogen or planes running on hydrogen. But the big issue, of course, is hydrogen itself, how you produce it. And I don't want to talk about that in detail. Obviously, green hydrogen would be the way you'd produce it rather than using coal-fired power to run the electrolysis process. Electrolysis, is that the right term? To yeah, break yeah, apart, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To break apart water into its core components. So effectively, you've got this whole process where you want to produce the hydrogen in a green way. So let's get past that argument for a start. Mm-hmm. We've got that. Assume we've got the green hydrogen, the quantities we need. Then you've got to have vehicles and planes that use it. Now, what Rolls-Royce are trying in this particular scenario is not going back to the drawing board and starting again from scratch and saying, let's design a hydrogen engine that's going to be used in planes. They're saying, let's take one of our gas turbine engines and then adapt it for hydrogen, which sounds like a much smarter way Mm. to go because you've got a lot of Rolls-Royce gas turbine engines out there running on kerosene typically. And converting those in some way, shape or form to run in hydrogen means that all those fleets across the world could be used again for hydrogen. Now, a few little issues here. At this stage, Rolls-Royce are only at the point where they're able to run it in test environments on the ground. So they're not putting these up in planes yet, but it's a step in the right direction. They're able to run it. That's the first step. They're not able to run it at full power yet. They're able to run it at idle. They're able to get it up to certain speeds, but getting it to full power, for example, takeoff, which might be pretty important in the whole scheme of things, (laughs) and then not not actually there yet. But it's a pretty big step in the right direction. And again, I love the fact that you're not going back to the drawing board. We did a story a few months ago where there was an aviation company in Australia, Rex, who were converting some of their Saab 340Bs yeah, I remember that, over yeah. to electric versions of the same. And again, the advantage there was you're not having to redesign the whole airframe, not even get certification for all of that. You're just changing the propulsion method. So this is a bit the same as that where you're trying to use what's already out there. The other big issue you've got is how you might store that hydrogen on the plane because you need a fair bit of hydrogen to replace kerosene. Kerosene Mm. is great for energy density. When you start talking about storing hydrogen, well, you either want to store it as a liquid, which is ideal. Minor issue there is you need it at minus 253 degrees Celsius. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. And even though when we go up high, when we're flying, we might be at, say, minus 50, minus 60 degrees Celsius when you're flying at heights, that's still not minus 253 degrees Celsius, and it's still going to be on the ground. So you've got to either some way of keeping it at that temperature, or you've got to compress the gas into such a, an environment that you're getting these incredibly high pressures. So you've got to have containers on the plane to store all that hydrogen at incredibly high and pressures. that comes with a bit of worry as well. That's exactly right. Some defect there, some issue happens there, then suddenly you've got a hydrogen explosion, which probably doesn't sound like a good thing at 36,000 feet. So there's some issues to deal with along the path, but I really do see that hydrogen will be a way that these long-distance transports, ships, planes, trucks will be using that. And again, it's great to see Rolls-Royce, who have such a huge history, as you say, you know, go back to the Battle of Britain, Rolls-Royce has such an incredible history in producing motor cars, but also engines for so many different 
planes out there, if they can still be adapting and agile enough to say, you know what, we've been around for a long time, but we're still going to adapt to the modern world. I think that some companies out there are seeing climate change not as a problem, but as a huge opportunity. And Rolls-Royce, it's great to see them being one of those. Yeah, Rolls-Royce, um, for their attention to detail. Yeah, they're, they're just, um, yeah, some great minds working on Rolls-Royce engines. To the doubters of EV technology, with their pointed arguments about poor towing ability and range, the good news is, is that a Tesla semi-trailer has just completed an 800-kilometre trip with a full load. Matt, we love a big EV story, and this one qualifies in every way. I don't really understand this whole argument about EVs can't tow. One of the huge advantages of an electric motor is that basically all the torque and all its power is available from zero. Mm. So it's not like you've got to get the engine up to 2,300 revs to get its maximum torque or 4,500 revs per minute to get its maximum power. And it's not quite accurate, but for the sake of a few percent I'm talking about, basically from zero all the way through, you've got all the torque and all the power. Mm. So when you're starting off towing, when you're at zero kilometres an hour and you put your foot down to start towing something, in a normal ice you've got to get up to a certain speed that you're getting that power. An EV, you put your foot down, you've got all that power, all that torque, they're ready to go. So I don't quite understand the big problem with towing. And in fact, I remember Tesla did a little demo one stage at Sydney Airport where they towed an A380, a Qantas A380, yeah, with right. a Tesla Model X just to show it could tow. Now, obviously, you're not going to tow that on the highway, but you're not going to run at 100 kilometres an hour with that, and you're not probably towing it that far. But it just demonstrated that, hey, we can actually tow with these things and we can tow a pretty big load. Mm. But Tesla with their semi, now, of course, Elon Musk here is a bit like Thomas Edison. He likes to announce things way before he's got them ready to go. And the Tesla semi, he announced back in 2017, Fantastic, 2017, that's a long time ago, but great, let's get this Tesla Semi. He said at the time that 2019 it'll be released. And then he said, well, maybe 2021 it'll be released, but definitely now, 2022. (laughs) So by the end of this year, we'll have Tesla Semis out there on the roads in the hands of companies. This is in America, actually doing some of their work. The test they've just done to demonstrate that it's ready to go is, as you said, 800-kilometre trip with a full load, so 37,000 kilograms, 37 tonnes they were towing on that particular semi. Now, that's a single-trailer semi. B-doubles obviously are heavier than that. But again, 800 kilometres, most trucking companies would be happy with 800 kilometres. Most trucking companies don't carry more than 37 tonnes in their trailer. So that's a fairly good test. But again, can you imagine the cost savings here? The amount of electricity, I don't know how many kilowatt hours the battery is in this particular semi, but the amount of electricity you might use, the cost of that 800-kilometre trip would be insignificant compared to the petrol or the diesel you would use in a normal trip. Now, keep in mind that there are some people out there pretty keen to see this come to fruition. You've got PepsiCo have ordered more than 100 of these semis. You've got UPS have ordered more than 100 of these semis. So you've got some companies out there that are pretty keen to get these rolling out there on the ground wow. and actually making a difference to what they're doing. So it's it's a pretty good target they've got. And there's a, it's a big industry. The trucking industry generated about $726 billion in a pre-pandemic year in terms of the, the amount of money for that industry. So it's pretty good. And any of those countries out there that have got emission targets, which any sensible countries do have, then those trucking companies would be very keen to get on board with EVs for their emission targets, for their low cost of operation. And I'm just I'm trying to get a picture in my head of this thing driving 
along the highway or whatever, uh, or at least maybe through a town where it's got a you, you stand a truck changing gears going up. This isn't going to have a high and low range gear box. More, it's just going to be more likely than not. Probably not. I mean, the it's Tesla have an vehicles, accelerator, and that's pretty much it. That's yeah? right. The Tesla vehicles have got. No gears. Porsche came out with an EV that did have two gears, like an automatic transmission. But yeah, one of the challenges of driving in a big truck, and I've sat in trucks and spent time with people with trucks, and it's a art form just to change gears. Yeah. What they've got to do to change gears, and they've sometimes got some ridiculous number There'll of gears. They'll be purists out there, like so angry that they're going to take away this this art. That That's right, that the skill. Developed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you're right; it'll have an accelerator and a brake. I can't see it having gears in there. And and quiet as and quiet. So the <laughs> engine. Can you give me an engine braking noise when a truck comes into town? With a bah. You're not going to have that, are That's you? That's right. You're not going to know there's a truck coming up behind you, slowing down. <laughs> you won't get scared yeah, out of your wits. <laughs> so it is. It's changing. Now, the two models they've got, they've got the model that does 800 kilometer range, about $180,000. Now, I'm not an expert on truck prices, but $180,000 doesn't sound like a huge amount for a semi-trailer, a, a big rig. That sounds like the sort of money. In fact, I thought that sounded a bit cheap. Now, these are US dollars, of course. Yeah, well. I thought people spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on their actual towing rig. If you only want the 480-kilometer uh, version, it's $150,000. Mm. So they sound reasonable. Yeah. Elon said to some investors he wants to produce 100,000 of these trucks a year. He's not quite at that volume yet, <laughs> but uh, far better for Elon, Elon to make some promises. talking big. Yeah, I yeah. know. Oh, that's how he talks, isn't it? How are you going with your scam emails, folks? Is your inbox cluttered on a daily basis by this hopeless and frustrating digital scunge? One provider knows just how destructive this stuff is and is powering its way, or is powering away, I should say, to minimise our pain. Matt, what do Big Pond customers have to brag about now? Well, Big Pond is, or Telstra is telling us with their Big Pond customers, that they're doing a pretty good thing trying to stop some of these scam emails and SMSs and phone calls coming in. And people get frustrated when they see these scam and spam emails coming. Oh, no, I've got more of this rubbish coming in. Damn it. Why doesn't someone do something about it? Well, Telstra released a report recently that said, we're doing something. We're blocking 7,600 emails per minute. Per minute? Per minute. <laughs> now, this what? is just for big pond customers. So if you had Gmail or Outlook, that's not part of that number. If you had your own email provider, your own domain name, for example, that's not part of that number. This is just for big pond customers out there. Telstra so said... We're talking about 125, 130 maybe, no, 125 emails per second. You're talking 7,600 divided by 60, 760 divided by 6. So you're talking about 100, yeah, 12, 7, yep, so that's about right, 120 oh, a second. Smokes. Unbelievable, isn't it? So when you talk about those numbers, again, just big pond, Telstra estimates that's about 38% of all the email that's received by big pond customers. So that gives you an idea. Apply that same number to other email providers. It would probably be about the same, 38%. So that means of all the emails that are going out around there, bouncing around in the big ether, then about 38% are rubbish. Yeah. What that then does is means that we're having to create networks that are capable of higher volumes of traffic than we really need. The whole MBN, the whole amount of 
data you need with that, the unlimited da- data plans that you've got, all these things that are bouncing around out there, if we could reduce that volume, take that 38% out, suddenly our networks would seem faster and we wouldn't have to keep building the same level of infrastructure. So not only are they annoying, not only do we say they're costing some people money, hopefully our listeners are aware enough from the discussions we've had before that they're not being scammed, but it's costing all of us money because of what we've got to build in our networks to actually accommodate yeah. this. Now, when you then add in phone calls, so Telstra said they're also blocking 15 million scam phone calls each month and 61 million scam uh, SMS messages each month. So that's incredible in terms of the number we're talking about here, 332 million emails each month. So when you multiply that 7,600 out to a month. So they're incredible So if you're numbers. still getting frustrated by these scam emails and messages and whatnot, you've got to know that there's there's still a lot being stopped. A lot being stopped at this stage. And again, people say, why can't you just stop them? Why can't we stop the people doing it? And we have mentioned it before. These aren't kids in their basement in a blackened room just sitting there doing devious things. These are organisations, big businesses, where people go into work in the morning, they hang their coat at the door and they go and sit out at their office or at their computer. They've got their boss who's given them targets for the day in terms of how many people they've got to scam for the day and how many people they've got to get out there and reach out to. All these things, it's run like a big business. And these are typically in countries where you may have a bit more of a problem prosecuting some of these organisations. Mm. So it's not as easy as go down for the police to go and arrest the guy that's creating all this problem and then it all stops. It's a big business for large organisations and obviously they make money out of it. They're paying these employees. I don't imagine they're paying them a lot, but they're paying these employees to go out there and do this sort of thing. Incredible. Pain in the neck. I remember talking previously in an episode long gone by now that the future of medical diagnostics was likely to be in the form of a whole body scanner. You'd step into this device, or lie down, what have you, and this thing would do a scan and let you know all about the ailments that you had, that you had no idea that you had. Well, the first version is out, and it's going to revolutionise a GP's workday, Matt. It absolutely will, and prevention is better than cure, and that's what this is all about. In 15 minutes, it will do a whole body scan. In this particular one, you stand up, it does a whole body scan, it's got no radiation, so I don't know at what level it actually does the scanning at. You don't need to hold your breath for 15 minutes. That might be a bit of an issue for people. And it's probably not too claustrophobic because it's actually got the sides open. So it's kind of got a front and a back, and the sides are open. So if you do get a little bit concerned in enclosed spaces, well, it seems like it's open enough. So basically this is it's something out of Star Trek. <laughs> it does sound like that, doesn't it? It scans your body, looks for a whole range of different indicators in your body, and then from that you can sit down with a doctor and you basically create a digital twin. Then you can come back on a regular basis, good recurring revenue for the company, <laughs> and do that scan maybe every six months, maybe every year. And that digital twin of yours has got an update on anything that's happening with you. Now, in that digital twin, you would enter any uh, sort of things that you're taking, any sort of pills, prescriptions, anything that you were taking on a regular basis. You would keep that up to date. Your doctor would go through and update that with anything that's happened in the past. You might have broken your arm 10 years ago. So mm. on your scan, it might show up something on that particular arm. So that's the reason for that. It's not a growth happening there. It's expected to see that extra bone around that particular break, for example. But this digital twin is something that you can keep monitoring and it's independent of the doctor that you might be seeing. So if 
that doctor moves away or you decide to go to another doctor, that digital twin can be taken with you wherever you go. It does sound fantastic. It does, yeah. Not available here yet. This is happening in America at the moment. People are using it now, so it's not as if it's coming at some stage in the near future. This is happening. QBio Mark One Autonomous Whole Body Scanner is the name. QBio Gemini is the the platform that they use for this digital twin platform. So it, it sounds fantastic. It sounds like something that I want my doctor to have today i just love the idea because i do go along in fact when i turned 40 i went on to my doctor and said right i want a whole range of tests i want to do blood tests and everything he said look you're fit and healthy and you exercise and you eat well so we don't need to do that so well that's fine but i want to do that and he said no no i want the baseline data yeah but most people wait till they're 50 or 55 before they do it i said well can i do it i actually had to have an argument with my doctor to get him to do some <laughs> blood tests just to do some basic things and i always felt guilty when i wanted to go back each year to go oh, i don't want to have the argument again so it almost puts you off doing it if you've got to have the argument but now if you've got this sort of technology I can't imagine it would be incredibly cheap to go and do this, but again, how much is our health worth and how much is it worth if we can pick up things early rather than, oh no, it's a major problem now, we've got to do major surgery or you've got to have chemotherapy or whatever it might be. Getting it early, I just think sounds fantastic. So this is the sort of thing that I think we'd be looking for for a long time. Absolutely. Yeah, this will this will be a game changer. It'll extend people's longevity no end. And with the sun setting low on the horizon, it's time for us to saddle up and get the hell out of Dodge. Thanks for another rip-roaring episode of Tech Talk, Matt. Oh, I thought you might have brought the accent back for the outro. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'll just let it go. People can have too much. <laughs> I'm your host, James Eddy, and it's been a pleasure once again bringing you our humble podcast. We hope to catch you next week for another round of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. In the meantime, throw a little love our way with a like or a tasty review and spread the good word while you're doing your Christmas shopping. See you next time. <laughs>